Welcome to Doing Well, Feeling Fine. I'm Boris Evenstein. In this episode, I'm sitting down with Simon Critchley. He is the Hans Jonas Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research in New York. Simon covers continental philosophy, philosophy and literature, psychoanalysis, ethics, and political theory, among other topics. He does that by touching on topics that many of us can relate to, whether it's humor, David Bowie, religion, or football. Today, I want to ask Simon to discuss the role of story and narrative in making sense of our biographies. We explore how the stories we tell about ourselves often rely on stability and coherence. The reason is to convey authenticity, and in some ways to fit a mold that others both recognize and value. In practice, though, we often don't live in a very consistent or coherent way, as Simon and I discuss insisting on the constancy and continuity of the self as a bit of a fiction. Against the narrative version of the self, living out a coherent story, Simon pits the episodic self. On this account, we live out our biographies in stops and starts, in episodes, which don't necessarily add up to a coherent whole. But rather than seeing this fragmentation as a problem, as a kind of identity crisis, leaving people to wonder who they really are, and I think you can hear my scare quotes here, Simon celebrates the freedom from identity. He argues that our attachment to authenticity is restraining and that there is freedom in trying out new episodes, new versions of the self all the time. There are many sides to us and we constantly evolve, especially if we're open to getting outside our heads and looking at what's really going on in the world. Here, we connect back to the episode earlier on this on this podcast, episode 24 with Christian Matzbiak, in which we discuss how to see with neutral eyes. In the end of our conversation, the version of the self that we land on is that of the curious observer, less obsessed with their own narrative and presentation of self, and more open to new impulses and people. I found this conversation insightful and really refreshing, and hope you do too. Here is Simon Critchley. All right, everyone, I'm here with Simon Critchley, who joins us from New York today. He is the Hans Jonas Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research, and Simon is a true polymath. He covers continental philosophy, philosophy and literature, psychoanalysis, ethics, political theory, among others. And Simon has published, I think I counted this right, hopefully Simon correct me if I got it wrong, nearly 40 books and edited collections. That's oh, four yeah, zero. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I don't think it's that many, but it's 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 a lot. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, I counted individual titles. I, I'll admit, like two or three might be translations into another language, but fundamentally, it's a lot of like the big opus. And you worked on Levinas, Heidegger, to all the way to books about football. That's uh, soccer for yeah. those of us listening from the U.S. Humor, David Bowie, religion, and even suicide. Yeah, in right. the traditions of Stockheim, I suppose. Um, you yes, moderated. Yes. So, so, I mean, just an amazing opus of work. You you, you moderated um, a series on philosophy at the New York Times, which is a kind of mm -hmm. I suppose a kind of almost like a separate uh, section of papers and discussions called the Stone. And yeah, you had many of your colleagues weighing in on contemporary art, literature, politics, popular culture. So, we're here today 
to discuss the role of story and narrative in making sense of our lives and in making sense of who we are and who we want to become. I thought this is very topical for the kinds of things we cover on Doing Well, Feeling Fine. So welcome, Simon, and thank you for being here. Thank you very much for the invitation, Boris. I'm delighted to be here wherever, wherever here is. Where, wherever here is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Probably it's best described as wherever this is listened to at the receiving end. Exactly. So, first question for you, let's jump right in. When was the last time you asked yourself, who do you think you are? What was the response? And who was it precisely that answered? Well, I was asked to write something on that topic in <laughs> March and, um, you know, this by the New York Times. And um, so I was thinking about it in March and April and, um, and then wrote something which they called um, Life Does Not Need a, a Narrative Arc. That was the how it was published. Life does not need a narrative arc. You don't get to choose your titles with the New York Times; they choose them for you. So I was thinking about it then, and I was thinking about it out it in. Um, I was in living in Athens for six weeks. I was thinking about it in relationship to where I was, which happened to be in Greece at the time, which of course inflects how that question is going to be answered. So that's the last time I thought about it, and. Um, Oh, who was it that answered? Well, that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> that was the it was the me of um, March, which is uh, not the me of November. Yeah, um, which is my point. You know that the the idea to maintain the idea to insist upon a kind of constancy of the self, uh, an endurance of the self over time, I think is something which is overstated, and I think it's something which can be. Uh, could be criticised, and I think it's the way in which that's become uh, an obsession with uh, narrative ideas of the self, the idea of the self as a story, I think is, um, well, uh, ultimately, I think it's false. I just don't think, I think it's, well, uh, you know, as, as our American friends would say, it's, it's bullshit. It's the more that people tell these stories about themselves, the the less true they become. And people who are profoundly attached to these narratives of who they are are <laughs> delusional and not to be trusted is pretty much my view. And, and I, I, yeah, go and, on. And possibly not very free, frankly, because, you know, you're living your life according to that script. But maybe yes. on, on the relative uh, presence of agency in this context, let, let, let's jump into the next question here. Are, are we self authoring so we're choosing to write our own story mm -hmm. or is our self and our identity essentially socially constructed i i think it's you know neither and both um i think we're i think agency is partial i think we're already partial authors of our story if you like and our story was often written before we were born and we're kind of living things out which we usually don't understand and which it's sometimes the purpose of say therapy to perhaps reveal or memory to reveal and um identity is well i've got problems with the, the whole idea of identity uh which we could get into is it socially constructed well yeah is it completely socially constructed no uh there are there are simply organic um, bases for uh, human agency, which 
is why we have things like biology and uh, to to help us in that regard. It's it's a very fashionable. I wouldn't say it's fashionable. I think it's a it's become a kind of a, a dogma in um, in academia and then in you know forms of life to insist upon the social construction of the self and. I think that's part of the story, but it's really not the whole story. And uh, there is this thing called nature, which is uh, incredibly powerful. And, uh, you know, we we risk under understating that at our peril. So I think both at once. But the, the, my assistance would be on the, the that we're we're only partially agents of our uh, of our fate, as it were. We are shaped by forces, and those forces are social, cultural, linguistic, but they're also organic, natural, and um, things which are inherited from the fact of being a member of this species that we barely understand. Yeah, yeah. So, bi- uh, yeah. Bi- biology in, in, in all of this was not a very popular concept in these debates of agency versus social constructionism or what have you, biology never featured. It was kind of unpopular to say that biology played much of a role in determining uh, who we are or a sense of self. And indeed, much work was expended in trying to deconstruct, you know, quote, unquote, biology. But mm-hmm. of late, the idea has somehow resurfaced. And I don't know what you make of this. It'd be interesting to hear this this notion that actually free will is an illusion because at the sort of micro-temporal level, sort of milliseconds prior to any decision that you take, you know, your biomass has sort of decided for you. And that presents as, you know, the decision that feels intuitively more right or the thing that you're compelled to do anyway by virtue of what have you, your brain, your impulse, some kind of biological activity. You know, what do you make of this idea that there's no free will and everything is sort of biologically predetermined? uh, I think it's the wrong question. I think the, you know, I think that the uh, you know the the idea that there is no free will presupposes that we have some understanding of what free will is in the first place, which I huh. which I question. Um, I think that we're um, you know the, the 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 tendency towards I don't know um, extreme proclamations on things like free will, we have it or we don't have it. I think are. Um, are at the very least, um, limited and um, and I think I think I think pernicious. I think we mm. are both shaped by, again, shaped by forces, and the um, one, one, one way one way of thinking about this, which just comes to mind, is um, you know, in terms of Freud, who I'm not a huge Freudian, but Freud. Uh, thought that we had these things called drives, you know, trieb in, um, mm, trieb, in German. Yeah. And uh, the drive is something which um, exerts a pressure on a psychological pressure. That can be a, you know, a drive which wants to eat, uh, wants to drink something, a drive of thirst. And that has a, the drive has an aim. It aims towards something, it's directed towards something and has an, has an object, let's say, uh, a glass of water or a cup of coffee or whatever. Um, but the fourth component of the drive for Freud is what he calls the source. And the source is organic, it's biological. And Freud says that's not a question for psychologists, that's a question for biologists. And um, 
And I think I'm kind of with that, that the uh, the source of uh, the drives that shape us, the desires that we have is is organic. Uh, and But the way those things are, uh, the pressure they exert, the way they, they, what they, how they aim and what they aim at, those are things which we can, to some extent, shape. So there's freedom yeah. there, right? But freedom of a more limited, a limited kind. So I think it's, um, you know, that's the way I'd answer that yeah. question. Yeah, yeah. I think I think these uh, debates, of course, are so overly conceptual, and one might mm -hmm. argue, you know, to what <laughs> practical end do they help us really to make sense of, um, you know, whether we do or don't have degrees of freedom? We're certainly choosing individuals all the time. I mean, there's a manner of hundreds of decisions that we take every day, and yeah. in some ways, you could argue that, that you know the the, the go-to decision is always already known at some subconscious level based on what feels right. But on the other hand, uh, you know, you could choose to gather up more information and change your mind about things. And, you know, you redecide, you test something and reevaluate. So there's, there's a level of practical, like in reality, in sort of practical terms, there's some freedom there. And yes, I, I very much so. I think it's the, um, I think it's the, the freedom. I, I put this more, more polemically. I say that the freedom consists in the freedom from identity, from some, some conception of identity, which yeah. is usually shaped by, a story, a narrative, something that you insist on, you know, that you repeat endlessly to your family members, your friends, and that there's a kind of, you know, we, people have, people choose for various reasons to inhabit a kind of prison house of identity. And uh, freedom for me, if it consists in anything, it consists in um, metamorphosis. Mm. Uh, a, a metamorphosis is the fact that you can you can embrace new forms you can take on new forms you can you can at least in your in your mind become become something else become somebody else and this is what you know the world of you know of, of art and culture and books is about that you can you may insist well i am this and i'm from here and this is what it means to be me but to engage in uh, I don't know. Just the, the simple thing of watching a watching a film is to allow yourself to be uh, taken over by a new uh, a new a new form of identity, a metamorphosis. And so I think there's yeah. a I think our freedom consists in the capacity for metamorphosis, and that means giving up uh, a kind of tyranny of, of, of identity. And it means also it means I think it means. Um, this, this, this is a line of thought that I really became aware of last year. I began to have word, names for, words for. I began to read um, Elias Canetti uh, mm -hmm. closely after after years. Of, I knew him as a, as a young man vaguely, but I read a collection of pieces by Canetti, uh, which was edited by a friend of mine, Josh Cohen. And uh, it's called, you know... Um, I will smash myself. I will smash myself until I'm, smash myself to pieces until I am whole. Until I'm whole. Let's see if I can get that right. Smashing yourself to pieces until you are whole. And the someone like Kinetti was someone who was in a continually restless state. And the last um, the last piece of text we have from him is uh, is a plan for an entirely new reading of I think Proust or something like that. 
which he was just imagining. And I really need to get started on that and give up these conceptions that I have of myself. And and so, so metamorphosis is really important in terms of thinking about freedom, the, the yeah. ability to take on new forms, new identities, new personas, which we can we can inhabit, we can discard, and we can move on to something else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's talk for a moment about this idea of a unified self versus mm -hmm. a fragmented self. So your sense of identity can evolve with the episodes that you discover. And there's new stories. Some of them are contradictory. They feel at odds, but it doesn't matter. All of this is the kind of cacophony of who, who you are. And there's some freedom in that unpredictability change, uh, what have you. Let's also talk about the the the, the multiple uh, view of selfhood. So as we're sitting here, you know, we're two individuals who are coming together over shared interests. For you, yeah. perhaps lifelong study of philosophy. For me, connected to part of my academic life, but we are also mm -hmm. many other things. I suspect you might be a football fan. I know, or I, I think, am. I think to know you're from Liverpool. You're yes. a person who, you know, played with the idea of being a musician at some point, I guess. You worked yeah. in a pharmaceutical company. I, uh, yes, I know, did. <laughs> so, so what I'm getting at is that there are hundreds of coordinates in this system that make up Simon and, and Boris. So we're kind of fragmented and mm -hmm. I wanted to get your view on this. So what is going on here? Like, is that a problem or is this like a sort of noisy orchestra of sometimes contradictory stories? And can we live with those stories as we, as we cycle through different life worlds? Are we, should, should we like with Zizek, you know, should we love our symptom and, and <laughs> this is what we are? It's like a hot mess or should we somehow think of our story again as more singular, like imagine, post-war identities, you know, uh, respectable working class. You, you, you're, mm -hmm. you're from this community. This is your pub. This is your football team. This is yeah. your family name. This is what you're going to be and the job you'll do and the person you're likely going to spend your life with in a relationship. Like that thing is a singular narrative. So kind of what's your view? What's happening? Are we unified selves? Are we fragmented selves? What should we strive for? I think we're... Um We're not unified selves. We are, I think if you, you talked about a noisy orchestra of contradictory things, yes, it, it's like that. Um, if we just think about, you know, a day, you know, um, am I the same self when I'm sleeping as when I'm awake? Am I the same self when I'm just waking up and partially having some kind of consciousness, maybe going to the bathroom or then beginning to go about my day. And, you know, then there can be the self, which um, I think the self can be, you know, much of the time, like a, just kind of humming along like a, like a, like a flat screen television or something. And then it can be, the self can be flooded by anxiety, by, 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 by fear of something, there's a, something awful going on, or you're just, uh, you experience a bad conscience about something. These are, these are different variations of a self which one can go through in a few minutes, you know, uh, or over an hour, let's say. And I think it's the idea that the self is a stream, uh, like a unified stream, I think is, is not true. We're, we're, uh, the self is a kind of series of jumps and starts um, 
the a kind of flickering. Uh, this is what I call borrowing from the important British philosopher Galen Strawson, um, the idea of an episodic idea of the self. Episodic self. So yeah. I'm against narrative ideas of the self, and this would be the idea that, uh, and you can find this in philosophers like um, Alistair McIntyre, Paul Ricoeur, Charles Taylor, but you can find it all over the place. Um, in this um, piece I wrote, I talk about, I quote Daniel Dennett saying, we're all virtuoso novelists, and Oliver Sacks saying, each of us constructs and lives a narrative, and this narrative is us, our identities. I just beg to differ. I think we are, we're episodes, we're fluctuating episodes, and we and we live in those in those blips, in those in those jumps and starts, and that's and that I think is another way of thinking about freedom. That I have the freedom to, you know, enjoy another episode, to be something else for a certain period of time. I'm I'm not a prisoner of the uh, the story that I tell about myself. And you know, you, you meet people like this who will. At parties or, you know, political figures, let's say, who will just have their narrative and they just repeat their yeah. narrative over and over again. And it maybe there was a grain of truth in that um, at the beginning, but the more it's said, the the more false it becomes. And and I think the and this this is kind of my main point. Uh, the model for that narrative idea of the self is really religion. It's a it's a religious narrative, and it's um, the idea that uh, we get from um, ultimately from someone like Saint Augustine that you know I was a sinner and now I am saved. I was uh, I was a bad person and then I was then I was transformed. And that the self has this this narrative of fall and redemption. That's the overwhelmingly Christian narrative in the West. You can find other versions of it in other religious cultures. And I think you know people that insist on the narrative idea of the self are just repeating that religious. They're reading from that religious script, often without knowing it. And in the the piece I talk yeah. about, um, you know, Barack Obama, but it could be anybody really. I mean, I mean, Barack Obama, who is a kind of seems to be an expert in autobiography. It's all in terms <laughs> of you know, full redemption, uh, and then rising up and finding who you are. And uh, and those are the stories that people like to hear because they sound like nice stories. They make good uh, good books and good movies, but it doesn't mean that they're true. And they often turn around this this uh, shibboleth, this this uh, obsession we have with authenticity, the idea of that you mm. are author of yourself and the as to being author of yourself means that your story is the basis for your authenticity and you just keep on repeating that. And I think that's, um, that's not true. It's pernicious and it actually closes, it closes us off from how, 
um, how the experience of the self actually actually works, which is much more episodically, much more um, much more complex than that. And if we allowed, if we gave up these stories and allowed ourselves to just be something else for a little while, I think it would be um, a great exercise of, of freedom. That's my humble opinion. <laughs> So uh, let me let me try. I mean, I, I uh, am in agreement with you, but let me try a, a small redemption in favor of those, let's say, unified uh, heroes' journeys, as it were, because mm -hmm. I think they have all the hallmarks of a kind of heroes' journey. Who absolutely, you know, everything is quiet in the village, and we're in the Shire, and the hobbits are, you know, peacefully smoking their pipes and you know going about their business, puttering around in the garden, yeah. and then suddenly some drama ensues. And you have a quick moment where you debate, you know, should I rise to the challenge or rather stay here in the Shire smoking or, you know, puttering around? And, and then you say, no, you know what? I actually, I have to rise to the challenge. And so I set out and uh, you go for it, but you kind of, you don't succeed at first or you might even fail or there's some sort of trauma or some turning point that, uh, you know, takes you maybe beyond the edge of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you persevere regardless and you come home to tell the tale. And that yes. whole thing is like nice and coherent. And then basically you can publish your, you know, biography at the age of 40 or something like that. Wow, you, at the you, age of 25 it. now, really. Or, yeah. Exactly. I mean, in some, uh, you know, depending a little bit on the, the discipline in which you've excelled, maybe you're 25. Um, and so we can all kind of laugh at that. And frankly, maybe to, to, to put more, one more chink in that armor, that you can always tell when you're at a cocktail party and the person is just a little bit too smooth in their sort of yes. three-minute spiel. and their narrative is just a little bit too perfect, you know, and you're exactly. like, well, this, this exactly. sounds slightly off-putting. I mean, are, are you sure that's you? I mean, that you're presenting it as, you know, ostensibly authentic. It's like, yeah, 100% uh, legit biography, but really it feels like a script. But, but let me try <clears throat> a redemption of some of that. Mm -hmm. So when you're ambitious or when you're a striver, Don't you need something like this narrative to give you meaning and direction? Like, I am going to be the kind of person who set out to whatever, put a dent in climate change or, you know, build a business and be an entrepreneur or just be a person of character who has enduring norms and values that you can read off of me in any situation. You know what I mean? So I'm a, let's say, empathetic individual who can look beyond the boundaries of the self, no matter what personal stress or duress I'm under. Like... What happens to all of those ambitions if we say goodbye to that unified narrative? Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So I think being a striver, I mean, I think the first thing that comes into my mind, I mean, firstly, all the stuff about um, uh, the hobbits. And I mean, Tolkien was working very much with that, that structure. And then the way in which it feeds in through people like um, Joseph Campbell, hugely influential. Oh, yeah. The um, hero's journey, right? A hero's journey and then that shapes things like star wars and uh all those other movie franchises yes that's what you're meant to do and uh you conquer adversity and you know and that's that that's the standard story um but i think we're striving i think it's like um there's that movie by i think it's sam mendes called american beauty about 20 years ago and there's a female character yeah. in there is it Mina Savari? No, it's the it's the uh, Anne Annette Benning, I think, who plays oh, yeah. the female real estate um, real estate. She wants to sell houses, and she says to herself, "You know, today, today, I will sell this house. I will sell this house. I'm going to make this sale today. I'm going to do it." And that striving is um, 
perhaps misplaced, I think. And it's uh, so I'd be anxious for people to to give that up. And I'm, I'm deeply suspicious of people that can tell slick stories about who they are. Um, and that's what you're meant to do, say, in academia, in the United States and in, you know, the business world and everything else. You're meant to be able to tell a you know, give an elevator pitch, say who you are and what your work is in 30 seconds, and then how that has a moral payoff. And this new app that I'm developing is going to increase the amount of social justice in the world. And at that, you know, that point, I suggest talking to somebody else uh, <laughs> or, or just saying that, well, and I, because personally, I have, um, I have no clue. I mean, I, uh, and I've I've done this because over the years I've I've talked, I've been asked questions about myself, and it's um, and to be perfectly honest, it's a deeply kind of insincere enterprise. And the more that I talk about it, the more the more deluded I become. And I think it's so. The, so when I'm doing say a a piece of work, mm-hmm. a, a book that I'm working on. Um, and this is almost uh, to the point of superstition with me that uh, I will just not be able to say what it's about. Um, so if someone asks me, what are, you, what are you working on? I say, I'm, I've just written a book about mysticism. I can say that. I've written a book about mysticism. They say, what's the argument? And at that point, I just, I, I don't know. I've not, I've not worked it out. And then I can maybe throw out a few proper names uh, it deals with uh, Meister Eckhart. You ever read it? It, it, it deals with Julian Norwich. Uh, you know, and it's so. So I think it's um, giving up the striving is more honest. Uh, I think the questions of character, yeah. norms, habits, I think is a much more difficult question than is usually considered. And this is one way in which the history of philosophy can be very helpful because when we're thinking about character, habits, what it means to be a, say, a, a, a moral person to lead a good life. Yeah. Then, you know, we think of Aristotle. Aristotle was the kind of uh, the master of this in the Nicomachean ethics. And the key concept for him was what he called in Greek phrenesis, prudence, right? That what, it, what good people are prudent people, people that do the right thing, in the right circumstance at the right time, and they know what to do. They're moral people. Okay, that much is clear. And then we ask Aristotle, imagine a conversation two and a half years ago. Well, how do you acquire these uh, moral, how do you acquire this character, these these habits, these, these morals? And Aristotle's answer is basically examples. Well, you'll say, well, there was a Solon, the lawgiver. He he was an interesting person. He was a good person. And then there was uh, Pericles, leader of Athens. He was, you know, not perfect, but he was a kind of interesting person. So you find examples. The point being that for someone like Aristotle, there's no script from which you can read character, habit, morality. It's something which inheres in a certain social context, or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, People can very well be in a lot of trouble, so I think uh, it's a, it's a much more complicated question than is usually answered. This is not what you're meant to do if you want 
philosophy to be popular, you meant to kind of, you know, this is how you become develop character. This is how you become yeah. authentic. And this is, this is how you sell, sell books. And I think it's, um, I think it's a kind of elaborated form of self-serving self-absorption, uh, which masquerades as a moral lesson, which is actually insincere. And, um, we need to, we need to move away from that as quickly as we, we can and embrace this episodic idea of the self. <laughs> and I, I think that's what's, I, yeah, I, sorry. No, 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 I, I think what you just said there resonates with a lot of my personal concerns with much of the self-improvement discourse, yes. which endlessly teaches people how to be better versions of their, of, of themselves, of their self. And what it reminds me of is that many of the problems surfaced in these discussions could probably be solved by actually lowering the level of self-orientation and yes. not obsessing continuously over you know, the various peaks and troughs of that personal project, but rather simply dialing back the ego a little bit and being available to others. And that's almost all it takes. It's yes. almost like going, going to the doctor and being sent right back out of the office or out of the practice again. Uh, and you know, prescribed healthy doses of listening, as as opposed to you know, self obsessing. Yes, no, very much so. The self is, um, I mean, it's something which the levels of self absorption are nightmarish, and um, and the what you said about dialing back the idea of the, the self um, into something more open to others i think that's the answer we are we are dependent uh creatures we're dependent rational animals and um it's about um for me it's about you know living a a, a more honest life is about getting outside of your your head and your preoccupations and your yeah. obsessions and your ambitions and your disappointments and uh looking at what's going on in the world this is where i guess i'd intersect with your christian. previous guest christian yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. We, we taught a class on this for a few years and um yeah it's about not thinking but looking and that's that's easy that's that's much more easily said than than done we um uh it's not just that we you know, we're in our in our heads, kind of cogitating and ruminating. But now we're in a uh, a world of social media, although this is kind of obvious, where we're invited constantly to compare our lives with those of others, and our lives look like shit in comparison to the lives of others, which look great. So the preoccupation with the self is also a way of making us sad. <laughs> <laughs> making yeah. us sad and desperate and, and, and lonely. So well, it, it's, it's a kind of ultra elevation of the personal story, right? It's the mm -hmm. kind of representation of, of self nonstop uh, through these very short uh, presentations, whether it's a photo or a story, a little video or a take or an opinion, but you're constantly producing the story of yourself for external validation and mm -hmm. you're kind of waiting for someone to pay that bill and give you those clicks and 
make you feel real uh, and in the process of course you're <laughs> delving deeper and deeper into what, what, what can best be described as a sort of alienated experience actually yes and, and the same goes with um you know the challenge of looking because it's hard to look when you uh are what, what you're actually trying to do is opinion match uh, so so yes. can i force fit what i think i'm seeing with the opinions of the camp that I'm, I'm most aligned with. And so that makes looking very hard. But Christian said, Christian was interesting. And I'd recommend the episode when it comes out very shortly, probably be out by the time this one's out. Christian said, don't make it so complicated. So yes. he, he challenged back and he said, look, yes, we can get into intellectual conundrums on whether it's indeed possible to see in any sort of neutral way or whether there will always be lenses and discourses that shape what we see but he said look mm -hmm. just like chill with the academic lang language for a moment just mm -hmm. all, all i want you to do is just hold back on having an opinion a little bit longer than you would ordinarily do exactly exactly so we i mean we we taught this class christian and i which was called human observation and it was uh, really really simple and, but we began by telling the students that we had absolutely no interest in their opinions. Everybody's got opinions. I mean, you've got opinions. Uh, who cares? I mean, they could be, who knows what opinions they are. We're not interested. What we're asking you to do uh, is to observe something. Find a phenomenon and observe it and observe it repeatedly and then uh, make some notes and then assemble those notes into something that um, your grandmother could read, right? Something really simple with no jargon, no hyphenated words, no highfalutin phrasing, but in, in, in simple, clear English. We began with um, George Orwell, you know, how, why I write and politics and the English language and trying to get students to kind of detox from their um, their kind of the bad habits they've not just got into but they've in, they've been encouraged to inhabit and then these students go on into the world and have careers and they've got these bad habits intact so we asked them to observe something and to do that in a group so it wasn't just one of them it was two three four of them working together um, and to go back to the same street corner in Manhattan or wherever it might have been or in, in Berlin and to observe something, whatever it might be, you know, a, a coffee stand or, a, or a, a falafel shop or whatever it, it might be. And just see what arises, see what happens. And that's incredibly hard to do. And, um, and it's so the idea of, of, of looking is is incredibly, it sounds incredibly simple, but everything in, in our world is conspiring against that. It's forcing us back onto ourselves, onto self-reflection and onto some fictional narrative which underpins the idea of the self and where students are uh, and human beings are uh, like I've tortured by those narratives because they can't possibly live up to them. So this, yes. this goes back to the point about striving is that it's allowing yourself to be, you know, to be, 
to, to be soft, to be to be malleable, to, to to move where things are capable of, you know, receiving motion, and to and to, and to and to, and to, do, and to go with that, and to not to be not to obsess about a life in terms of certain punctuation points, in terms of success and wealth yeah. and partners and whatever it might be. So well, why, think, why, 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 why do you think it's so hard to release the narrative, to release the agenda? Uh, I think that increasingly, certainly in, in academia, students are encouraged to, they have to sell their narratives to, to get educated. You know, it's um, the rise of what's called in the United States, the personal statement. You don't just apply for, apply for a, position at a, you know at a school or a college you have to provide a personal statement which which lines all of this stuff up all of these wonderful things that you've done this wonderful person that you are and what the moral payoff of that story is and mm-hmm. um whereas education is the opposite certainly for for me education was about getting outside my head it was about being able to participate in lives which were which were not mine and and cultures and worlds which were not mine uh, and to um, and to give yourself some some time off so to be educated is to be you know is, is to is educare is to be led out I think we're at this point what we have to be led out from is our obsession with the the self and um, it's always been hard to do and now it is even harder to do and really hard to persuade people to take it on board to come back to the episodic idea of the self Mm -hmm. what are some of the pitfalls to watch out for so on the extreme end you know the postmodernists come to mind who argue well it all doesn't matter it's all just superficial play of you know meanings and 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 uh, sort of you know, like a, a tryout of different mm-hmm. ways of being and living it's all, all of this is just um play and irony and doesn't mean anything and it's like a little nihil- like borderline nihilistic right it's sort yes. of like, it doesn't matter no, nothing's coherent nothing's real nothing's authentic nothing's worth committing to over a longer period of time it's yeah which all is just, a series of masks that we put on yeah and take yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. exactly okay. and so that that strikes me as like a very alienating view of being mm-hmm. not much fun not something you wake up with fully motivated to commit to sure yeah but I, that's not what i'm arguing for i mean my, my point is much more in, in philosophical terms it's much closer to some like david hume good old david hume and hume's hume asks himself the question about personal identity is there something which um, allows for us to talk about the the coherence and constancy of the self over time, which we can then call personal identity. And his answer is no. There are just bundles of perceptions. And those bundles of perceptions are really important. They're not ironical masks. They're actually who we are, um, who we are as a, a child, as a someone that works, as someone who, I don't know, gets drunk every now and then someone, because we all become different selves at that point, someone that listens to a piece of music that they love and is transported by that. So we're those bundles. And um, so 
if you like, this is um, the episodic idea of the self is just an empirical claim mm. that we are we are we are bundles, and it's it was not um, normative. Maybe it's it's more like an observation of how things truly are, right? Rather than a guide for living. Yeah, oh, yeah, and they see, and then then um, of the the some people that were very very unhappy with with that idea of we're just bundles of perceptions because that doesn't really how do we how do we explain a unified idea of the self and a unified idea of the self that has some moral purpose so along comes your friend and mine Immanuel Kant hmm. and he was you know awoken from his dogmatic slumber by by Hume Hume posed a really serious challenge and then Kant comes up with this concept of what he calls the transcendental unity of apperception. So we can be bundles of perceptions, but transcendentally at the level of the conditions of possibility of experience, this has to be happening to a self, a self which is logically implied by experience. And on that basis, he then, uh, which is, which is a, an interesting argument. Um, on that basis, he then goes on to make a series of moral claims, and and Kant, you could see, you could say, is still very much haunted by that um, that religious narrative, that Christian narrative of uh, of of fall and, and redemption. And what someone like Hume was up to is something much more radical. That we are. We are episodic blips. We're this and we're that, and it doesn't all cohere. And that's that's not a moral problem. That's actually an extraordinary moral advantage because it allows us to participate in surprising and new forms of life. The possibility of what I called before metamorphosis, and and um, so I think it's um, so I think the episodic idea of the self is 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 an empirical claim um and it's not a very controversial one <laughs> well what about the idea that a lot of our sense of self and who we are and our self-worth if you will is derived from the view that others have of us so i'm thinking of yes. Mead, this like looking glass self idea the german ethnomethodologists have something similar, I think, where it really is the eye of the beholder that makes the whole thing valid for me. Mm -hmm. So I might be masterful or not at crafting that kind of story about who I think I am or going to become, but it's not really happening until someone third party says to me, you know, this was a great presentation, therefore you are a decent manager or, yeah. you know, we acknowledge uh, your business results, which clearly w were difficult to achieve in the current market environment, therefore you are a successful business person, and so on and so forth. And so this kind of idea that it, it takes someone else to look into us to make it real. But if there's nothing coherent to see there, are we then not really there either? Yeah, well, um, yes. I mean, what you're saying is, you know, has great validity. I mean, the self is um, something which uh, shows up in the eyes of others. And, and I, I see, I, I take that even further. And I mean, to this extent, I'm, to this extent, I am Freudian that um, I think that the basic 
basic human experience is self-deception. I think we have no we have no lucid awareness of, of who we are. Therefore, we're dependent upon others to tell us things about who we are and then learn from that. That's why we need friendship, companionship, and, and love. And um, and then philosophically, that would be that would take us into. Uh, you mentioned Mead, but uh, you know, right back to someone like you know Hegel, that the idea that the the self is constituted by uh, patterns of recognition, right? recognition from from others, and yeah. that's undisputably yeah. true. Um, but you the, know, like the the uh, kind of reputation that you have. Yes, sure, yeah, yeah, and uh, that that's that's deeply, deeply important and also really fragile. And it's um, it's uh, something that we constantly have to remind ourselves. So unless we're so we uh, there is this this great book by John Ronson called the Psychopath Test, which I read some years ago. Which is is a, <laughs> What's that is a great book. Well, basically, that if you if you're a psychopath, you can kind of get through life pretty easily, and you don't really have a conscience or an experience of shame. And uh, you can be exactly who you want the other person to think you are in a certain situation. So psychopaths are really good at manipulating people. Think about, you know, Donald Trump or whatever. He's a, there's a, a good psychopath. And so you can then think about the psychopath and think, well, am I a psychopath? Well, uh I hope not, but I'm not a psychopath insofar as I'm not. If someone tells me something nice or I get recognition or my, my reputation is burnished in some way, then, of course, I don't believe it. I think they're, I think they're out of their minds. I think they're mad. I mean, do you realize it? this is me? I'm a fraud. I'm, a, I'm an imposter. So I think that's I think the, the, the idea of the imposter syndrome is is really is really important, you know, and I felt that my whole life that, you know, at some point someone's going to come through the door and say, you know, you've had a lot of fun, Simon, doing this, but the time is up. You've got to go back to, back to the pharmaceutical <laughs> factory and, and uh, uh, get a, get a yeah, proper job. And oh, I, that's yeah. what I really believe. So other people are, it's, it's, it, you know, other people can make you feel terrible, but they can also give you little, little moments of you know incredible you think okay yeah you think that about me great um i'll entertain that for a moment and then i will reject it and move on to my basic level of ontological insecurity so i begin from an idea of ontological insecurity, insecurity. that we are not we're not secure in who we are in in our being we are fundamentally at odds with ourselves and yeah but not in a but not in a like destructive way right not in a sort of existentialist sort of this project is collapsing kind of way but rather in this more open-ended there's no ontological security since it's not written in stone who no, you it's not are written in stone. It, it can it can go really badly i mean i think it's you know I, i'm another another person who's really important to me um who i love to you know cite uh, is uh, R.D. Lang and his book, The Divided Self, which was uh, one of David Bowie's favorite books. 
um, in his hundred favorite books. And uh, Lang is trying to describe the process by which people go mad. And that, that madness is that, that dissociation that we experience, that, that disintegration and division of the self that can end up in, you know, um, incredibly destructive uh, behavior, destructive to the person concerned and people around them. Yeah. I, I mean, just, don't just, think just, that just we're think far from that. I don't think that we're ever, I think we're, I think we're kind of, we're kind of like normal schizoid selves who are just kind of hanging on. Dancing on the edge of that. I mean, you can see that. I think a good example of what you describe might be retirement, where you're okay, just about yeah. well, you're just song. about holding you're just about holding uh, that uh, narrative together of you know the company man, and often in mm -hmm. those narratives it is indeed gender. In those cases, it's deliberate, often male. And then the moment that person steps away from their role in you know General Electric or whatever for 30 years of being the site manager of X then you know they're, they're teetering on the brink of that kind of uh, existential meltdown because that source of uh, who they are is no longer readily available and that script collapses and the scaffold right with it i'm yeah, wondering sure. first i saw that i have to just saw that happen to my father yeah 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 that's, yeah it's, I mean, it, it it's takes horrible. a lot of takes a lot of strength to know that you're not the sum total of these uh, let's say personas Yeah, I mean, you have to persistently not believe them and know that you are just that cramped, anxious wretch who is the same as it kind of ever was. And, and, you know, and if you get, if people say nice things about you, you get recognition from some sort, or you have some role, well, that's very nice, but... Um, Don't forget the uh, don't forget the piece of dirt that you really are, and um, doesn't mean that you're doomed, but it means you hang on to that, and then and then see what you get from life. Retirement, yeah, it, I think it's this is the only the only argument for teaching philosophy is that you know they have to drag us out of the building in coffins <laughs> before we before we stop doing it, and because it, it's not really a very labor intensive uh, line of work, it's not very well remunerated or well paid which is you know which is which is fine you get paid a little bit to think which is which is great but well i saw, I saw that you, you you did describe the process of writing a book and you've got sort of 40 or so to your name and the, the way you described it was was how shall i say it was like a contact sport you know like it takes all of you to get those ideas out and you mentioned yeah. like editors or publishers don't really know the half of it this sort of you know want no. to quickly know where, where can i market this thing and how like is it a self-help guide or something you know like the actual labor and pain that goes into making it so i would i would say it's one of the more intense especially because if you stumble upon some sort of an unresolved contradiction or some like kink in the logic like you can't just paper of that over that you know if i if i write a mm -hmm. 15 chapter business book and my section on performance marketing is a little bit weak you, know, you you'll criticize that but the, like the whole project doesn't collapse doesn't hang on that but if there's like a fundamental flaw in your view of whatever yeah, becoming <laughs> well then that's a problem you know yeah yeah i think i think that the i mean writing books is uh is 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 hard it's really really hard and uh it's not fun and people that say it's fun i don't believe them i think the work they're doing something wrong 
it's it's a it's it, you know it, it's the most destructive thing to do with your your life, and it has all sorts of uh, costs. And I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it as a way of uh, as, as a kind of a Lebensform, as a kind of as a, as a way of life, a form of life. I think that there are certain people that just have to do it, and because uh, it's the only way they can they can find find voice by 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 lending themselves to some other set of concerns. So I don't know. I mean, I I wrote a book about Greek tragedy uh, some years ago, and um, you know, and that's that was particularly arduous because I'm not really a classicist. So I was pretending to be a classicist as well. But the, 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 um, and then editors and publishers just see these books like, I don't know, well, this is, this is a nice one. It's blue. This one is red. Could we have, <laughs> you gave us a blue one. Could we have a red one? Could you lose these chapters? You realize how much, how much pain this was to produce yeah, this yeah. piece of work. So, I think that yeah, uh, it's taken too lightly. But and then the book as a form is a mysterious one that you know people don't really read books much anymore. But they still. But have everybody a kind of wants cultural. to have one. Yeah, they they like. Yeah, they every, everybody wants to have one to their name, and and people don't read as you say. Um, I have two more quick questions before. Yes, go on. I, I worry we may have to wrap up, but but I want to get those two questions out. Like, and they're both on story, and then maybe uh, a few small ones to 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 close mm -hmm. out on. One is. We just mentioned retirement, but it's really around midlife, I think, that very often folks wake up to the to the realization that the story they've been trying to craft is not so compelling or there's it's not so coherent or there's something kind of not totally convincing about it. And then mm -hmm. some wake up and try to rewrite it and they flip the script at the 11th hour trying to reinvent, I guess. What what perspectives would you offer to those who seem to evaluate or value their lives relying on you know those established stories of status, success, accomplishment, and getting to a moment of crisis sort of midway through their yeah, it's run? It's not going to end well. It's not going to end well. I mean, you're you're just hanging on to delusion, to uh, to to ashes and cinders, and um, and often it means that people act like assholes you know along the way and that's uh, something to be avoided so my less my moral would be don't be an asshole and um it's a reasonably it's, low bar though but <laughs> it's, it, 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 yeah it's a pretty low bar don't be don't be an asshole and um and and, and call your mother while you still can and that that's um i think the stories that people this this is yeah, going back to the question of retirement maybe getting older too you realize that um at a certain point whatever you have to say really has no effect <laughs> people are going to do what they're going to do anyway you know there's a certain point when you're young that you really believe that you know your words and actions could perhaps change things and then you realize no people are just going to make the same mistakes over and over again and, and then you can magnify that in terms of political situations and that is um a source of um uh, you know, melancholy, melancholy realism. So there is that. Maybe just flipping this around. We talked about mm -hmm. retirement, midlife, and, and older. Let's oh, say older, slightly yeah. older. That. Uh, what about kids? Like, what should we tell our kids? Should, like, should we 
basically tell them stories about like here you could be a doctor and this is what that means and this is a good thing to strive okay. for like because kids kids work on stories right and if we don't tell if we don't provide it someone else will yeah it, yes i mean they do i mean it's um i think i mean i i begin from the idea that children understand everything um and therefore you can't keep secrets from them um and the 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 the, the kids that have had secrets kept from them uh, that has a very destructive effect so you have to assume that a child understands everything and i remember when um my son was I had a son who's 30 31 now and he was uh and i mean his mother broke up when i was about when he was about three and i was talking to actually i was talking to jillian rose the philosopher jillian rose on the oh, yeah. telephone for some reason i don't know what it was about but I was talking my, about my situation and she'd had a very complicated family life. And she said, whatever you do, keep your promises and don't promise things that you can't keep. And that's the kind of the measure that I've always uh, had with being, being a parent is that, um, you know, only make promises that you're going to follow through on because, um, Otherwise, you're going to lead to lead that child to be hugely disappointed. And then, but then the narrative, I guess, what would complicate that is that the, you know, the act of, uh, I guess, one of the acts of sadism that I perpetrated on my son was by forcing him to become a Liverpool football club fan supporter. Um, <laughs> supporter, yeah, and it was, um, and that was because my my grand parents were Liverpool fans my father was fanatical I was brought up with it so I condemned my son to that I formed him and now he feels you know what he feels the misery I feel when we don't play well and the joy when we do play well so I guess there's also that that you are uh you are passing on a uh, you're passing on a story. Oh, I got one more thing that I want to say, which is which is something I didn't say Please. in the article, which I, I think is, is, is helpful. But um, let me see if I can put this together. I wrote this down somewhere, and it's. Um, let me see if I can find it. Oh yeah, yeah. So, I think the question of. Narrative identity, the self as a story, is problematic for the reasons I've explained in our conversation. Um, but there are ways in which we can learn from the past, right? Uh, and there are ways in which we can um, develop um, an expertise which is not does not result in storytelling. And the two examples I, I, I'm thinking of here are um practicing music right uh playing music and mm -hmm. in a sense when you are practicing a musical instrument or you're playing in a band and it's something that you've done say for a number of years you're not that isn't a story but it's something that you you learn you can accumulate and you know what to do so if you watch say if you watch really good musical players improvising in a sense, they know what to do. There is a kind of a, uh, you know, a narrative as something that they've learned there, but it's it's um, 
it's also capable of, of shifting. And I think also with something like um, uh, people that play sports, particularly when I say, let's say footballers, as that's the most in, important sport, that, you know, uh, a player plays because they've been, and they play well, let's say, because they've been grounded in a whole set of habits, characters, traditions, competences, and so on and so forth. And, uh, but when they're playing the game, they're not thinking about that. Yeah. It's as if that whole experience has become embodied, you know, and they are the music or they are, they are the football. And I think that's, you know, and we call that, you know, uh, in a sloppy way, muscle memory. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And then, and then, and then, you know, the game is over, and a player is interviewed, and they're asked always the same question: "So, what was going through your mind when, you know, that pass came through to you and you scored that goal?" Well, nothing was going through their minds because no, they know exactly. what to do. I think it's much more at that level. Music and sports are kind of interesting examples of how we can. We Agreed. learn, we accumulate these these huge patterns of experience, but they're not narratives. No, and they're also not busy framing the representation in their mind as they're doing it, thinking, exactly. oh, how is this going to look from that camera angle? And if I score there and I run to that pole and I kind of do this gesture into the, like, will that go down well? So even, I think, I would venture, even the most vain ones, even the most... Even Cristiano Ronaldo... <laughs> I was actually, I was thinking of exactly him. So, so even Ronaldo in the heat of the game, he's just a masterful practitioner yes. and nothing more. And he's busy knowing, but not busy, you know, forming knowledge. He's not crafting stories. He's just a practitioner. Mm -hmm. uh, but like, you know, riding a bike without thinking about it, but at the highest level. I think a lot of the questions that we're talking about are questions which could be answered through sport in actually very interesting ways that, you know, things like, tradition, character, habits, morals, what it means to belong, uh, what it means to, to compete but in a way that doesn't lead to bloodshed and war. I think, you know, in many ways, these are questions which are, which are answered in a very everyday way through, for me, with, you know, watch, watching football, you know, it's, uh, and also the, if I think about, well, what, what actual continuity does my, life have um even if it's episodic well it's deeply bound up with you know the team that i happen to to love and which i and which i share with others and that's 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 the great thing about it it's not my team i can see a you know meet a, an eight-year-old kid in the street who's got a liverpool shirt on and then we can engage in conversation i mean we're close to to wrapping up but i think it was just a very nice little anecdote here of, you know, the professional soccer player or the professional musician or any kind of masterful, you know, craftsperson or practitioner that has, that has precisely no self-awareness in that moment, or at least, you know, isn't, isn't busy thinking about like, what, what's the Instagram version of this going to look like? And <laughs> so there, there, there's something beautiful there. And I mean, maybe as a last idea, I always find that at least from speaking for myself, I'm always like instantly drawn to people who have that kind of carefree, carefree low self-interest kind of availability that they radiate. And those individuals, somehow they'll draw a crowd, there'll be people going around them, they'll, they'll just radiate that sort of effortless joy. 
because precisely they're not up all the way up in their heads and they're just sort of at ease, at peace. And maybe in the end, that's the best thing to strive for. Oh, I think so. I, I completely agree with that. That's what um, that's what's uh, attractive in, a, in, in another person. It's that, yeah, effortless joy. Um, and to be able to um, relax into that, you know, to become, as Meister Eckhart would say, gelassen, you know, we're kind of open, relax. And that is something which I think is very clear to us in 2023 because we forgot how to do that in 2020. I think we've had to relearn all of these very simple social habits, what it means to, what does it mean to actually move around a city? What does it mean to use a, a subway uh, or a metro system? How do you give space to other people to allow them? We, 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 we forgot all of that for a, for a year or longer. And now we have, can, we have the chance to kind of relearn that and to, but there's one thing I want to, I think is so important would be a kind of carefree, um, yeah, it sounds a strange thing to say, doesn't it? Not careless, but a carefree, open curiosity about stuff that is that is that is deeply ontologically insecure, but also capable of being open to joy and pleasure. This is really important. Yeah, I think that's that's well put and a great place to end on. So, Simon, let me thank you very much for our hour together. I really enjoyed that and brought. Back. Thank you very much, Boris. It was a pleasure. And uh, we'll, we will be in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Simon. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like the show, please recommend the podcast to a friend. Give us a rating and a quick review wherever you listen to it. This helps others who might be interested to find the show. If there's a topic we should absolutely cover or a guest you'd recommend, please send us your ideas and feedback to dwff.pod at gmail.com.